to going through it with you. So you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. If you're uh, new uh, or don't have a Bible, you're welcome to, in the seat in front of you, there may be like a, a Bible underneath someone else's seat. Without creeping the person in front of you out, you're welcome to use that. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take that home with you. It's just a gift for you. Um, or you can get on your device, 1 Peter in the New Testament, pretty easy to find. As we get into the letter, I wanted to open the idea with, with something that relates and really related to the parable that we read in the beginning of the, the service with the foundation, the, the wise man who built his house on the rock. In 2006, some investors got together and they decided they wanted to develop a 31-story luxury high-rise condominium on South Padre Island in Texas. Sounded like a great idea. They were super pumped about it. They're like, we are going to give a wonderful, uh, a wonderful space for a lot of people. And uh, this high-rise features like a spa and a gym and multiple swimming pools for its residents. They had 147 residents, and each unit costed just a low amount of $2 million. So you know, any of us in here, we could have got one of these places. Um, and as they were developing this high-rise uh, they boasted that it would be able to withstand extremely strong winds because if you know anything about toward the coast of Texas, there's some strong winds that can, that can happen. And, you know, people are concerned about hurricanes. And they had three, uh, three separate walls that were built into the core of this building that they were going to use. And they were saying, listen, this thing can withstand the worst wind possible. So a lot of the residents were pretty pumped. They're like, this is a great thing. Well, Bad news was, two years into construction, uh, they noticed that the building was leaning a little bit and that the core of the building had sunk 14 inches, uh, which 14 inches is not a long way. Like, you know, if you walked 14 inches, you wouldn't feel like you went very far. But you notice how it's leaning? Yeah, that's not good. That is, that is no bueno. So they, they said... Uh, they told their investors, they're like, listen, we're going to fix this problem. Turns out, though, the problem was with the foundation of the building. The foundation was, they had this expandable clay that was supposed to help and all this other stuff, but it just wasn't working. And um, they, they tried to recover, but they couldn't do it. It would, it would cost too much. It would take too much. And, and the lesson they learned was a building is only as strong as its foundation, it doesn't matter what else is wrong with a building. You can, you can almost always fix those other pieces, but if the foundation is faulty, you either have to start over or you have to create a whole new portion of that building to make it happen, and, and they couldn't. So they, they decided we had to, we have to demolish it. It was one of the largest de- buildings that was demolished of its kind, this concrete core that, that it was. And so we are a lot like these buildings We are only as strong as our foundation. Hurricane winds, all kinds of problems are going to happen. We are going to endure trials in life. We're going to face difficulties. What matters the most is not the appearance. It's not the outer shell of how we seem on the outside. It's the foundation. What are we anchored to? And Peter, the Apostle Peter as he wrote his letters to the church, he wrote them thinking the church needs a strong foundation because the winds are going to come and the rains are going to come 
And there's going to be difficulties in life. And you're going to need a strong foundation in order to make it through. And Peter knew a lot about storms, didn't he? Anybody know the life of Peter? He knew what waves look like. He knew what storms look like. He, he had failed before. He, he had endured a lot of trials. So Peter writes this letter in 1 Peter with this kind of background in mind. And uh, so we're going to walk through his letter. We're just going to cover uh, the first part of uh, his letter. And we're going to do it with three questions. We're going to ask three questions to walk through 1 Peter, just to get an introduction, kind of an understanding of the letter as a whole. And it begins with the obvious question, who is the author? Who is this author that's writing to us, uh, telling us uh, what he's going to tell us? Because the themes in 1 Peter are so helpful for each Christian, how to endure through, through difficulty. So, so, who is our author? He begins in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Peter begins his letter telling everyone exactly who he is. This is Peter. Peter is a nickname. It's not his real name. Does anybody know his real name? Simon, Shimon in the Hebrew. It's Simon. His, uh, he's a Hebrew. But he identifies himself as Peter, which he grew up just as Simon. And uh, he got his nickname from Jesus. I think it's John chapter 1, verse 42, but I'm going to read from Matthew's account, just the encounter that Jesus had with Peter. As Jesus was walking along the sea, Matthew 4.18, of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So the introduction we get of Peter is he is your everyday common man. He is not someone in the community that's thought of highly. He's not someone in a great leadership position. He's not notable. He's not noticeable. Peter was a fisherman. It's like a blue-collar worker in a village. He was just your everyday kind of guy. He was married, so he had a wife. We know this because he had a mother-in-law, and you, you pretty much can't have a mother-in-law without a wife. Um, in Matthew 8, 14, it says, Jesus went to Peter's house and saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Then Jesus heals his mother-in-law. Great gift to Peter in the beginning of his ministry and uh, I'm sure that helped Peter's wife. Okay, you follow Jesus, that kind of feeling. But uh, Peter had a wife. And if you come from a Catholic background, I know that this gets into murky waters because in Catholicism they teach that, you know, Peter was the first pope, which that is not what we teach or believe here. But this is an issue for the Catholic Church. The first pope, according to them, had a wife. And, and he lived with her and they ministered together until they were both martyred in the 60s AD, according to tradition. And so he had a mother-in-law, he had a wife. What's also interesting about Peter is there's more written about Peter than any other guy in the Gospels except for Jesus. Peter's life was put on display for a reason. The reason why we have all these cheesy jokes about St. Peter and Apostle Peter is because more was written about him than any of the other guys, any other disciple. Peter is unique, yet he is so relatable to the common person. I can relate to Peter. Peter was passionate. You, you know some of the stories of Peter if you've ever read it. He's always zealous, ready to do whatever needs to be done, saying things probably don't need to be said. But he's, he's passionate. Uh, he's impulsive. 
You know, he's always quick to be like, no, 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 not you, or no, not this, or oh, I'll never do this, or I'll never, you know, he's impulsive. Uh, he's sometimes a little foolhardy. He, he does things that's not helpful. Uh, one time he cut off the ear of someone else, and he was not aiming for the ear. He was trying to cut off a man's head, and this is after he had been a disciple for three years. And uh, so you get a picture of Peter that he's very relatable to human beings. We can relate to someone that didn't always get it right, that was impulsive and passionate. I can relate to, to him. Remember when he got rebuked by Jesus? Because Jesus had this plan. Unlike any other rabbi or teacher, coach, master, Jesus' plan was, hey, you guys, I'm, I'm going to suffer and die. And Peter was like, I don't like that plan. Um, I'm against that. I don't know anyone else sharing that plan. I don't think anyone's ever come up with that plan, so we're going to not do that plan. In Matthew 16, 21, it says, from then on, Jesus began to point out. So in Matthew 16, we get later into the ministry. Jesus at one point decided, I need to tell the guys what's really going down. I need to let them know this is God's design and plan. It's going to be suffering, not success. It's going to be hardship, not harmony. It's going to be a cross, not a crown. I'm about to explain to those that are following me, if you're going to follow me, it's going to be difficult because I'm going to suffer and die. So Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders. That word suffer comes up a lot in, in Peter's letter, uh, which is not by accident. God choosing Peter to write this letter. For him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Rebuke is where you tell Jesus, no, Jesus, not your way, but my way. He rebuked him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but humans' concerns. Human concerns. So Jesus turns to Peter and calls him the enemy of God, the enemy of the world, the enemy of every human being. This, of course, hurt Peter, shocked Peter. I bet it shocked all the disciples. You know, it's one thing for your nickname to be Rock. It's another thing to be called the devil. And Jesus calls Peter the devil. He says, get behind me, Satan. And why is that? You are a hindrance to me. You're not helping me, Peter. You're not helping me because God has chosen that in His plan, in His design, I'm called to suffer. I, I actually am choosing to go the road of suffering. And you, your plan, your gospel, your message is no suffering. And that's a hindrance to me. You're doing the work of my enemy because I'm here to do my Father's will, not the concerns of human beings. Human concerns are what? Comfort, success, wealth, health. That's what we're concerned with. Isn't that what everyone in this room wants? I want it. And God says, or Jesus says, also God, God the Son, 
Jesus says, there's a difference between what God is concerned about and what human beings are concerned about. And God's plan is God's concern, not the human concerns that Peter is thinking of, which is comfort and success and no suffering. Can you relate to Peter? Have you ever felt like things would be better if God just answered your prayers and did things your way? Have you ever felt like that? Man, there's sometimes I pray where I'm like, God, if you just heal this person and then use them to be a testimony to this hospital, and then if you use this to be like a thing that we could share at our church, I have like all these answers for God as if God needed me to tell him, now listen, if things are going to go well, you, you just trust me. If you just do this, everything will be great. And then what happens when God doesn't heal you or God doesn't remove the mountain or God does allow suffering? We feel a lot of times like God has not even answered the prayer when the whole time the question of the prayer itself was a human concern and a human answer and God had a greater answer. He had a greater concern. Now, does God want to heal us? Yes, ultimately he will. And sometimes he heals us now, and it's so wonderful. It's a gift. It's grace. It's undeserved. We, we're so blessed by God when he heals us and helps us, and, and he does move the mountain, and he does relieve us from suffering. That is wonderful when God does it. But that is not always God's concern. There's no health, wealth, prosperity in Jesus' life, and that's what he's telling Peter, and that's our author. A man who lived it, who learned the hard way, if I'm going to follow this, this man and call him Lord, I'm saying I'm willing to suffer. And that's a lot of the theme of 1 Peter. Ironically, you know, Peter, Peter's name is Simon, Shimon in Hebrew. She, Shimon bar Yona, you know, Simon, son of Jonah. Do you know what Simon means in Hebrew? One who listens. Yeah, Right? I would have given Peter a nickname too, you know, one who listens. You kind of get the impression from Peter, not a great listener, more of a talker, more of a my will be done kind of guy, but I can relate to him. I'm so glad that, uh, that God uses him. Can you relate to him? I can, but the similarity between me and Peter that I relate to the most was that he was a failure and he buckled under fear. I can relate to that. I know what it's like to fail, to deny God and to go my own way. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 33, after Jesus had been telling them more what his plan was, a life of suffering, you know, birds have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. If you're going to follow him, you're going to have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. I feel like that. In my own heart and mind, I think, Jesus, even if everyone else falls away from you, not me, I'm I'm never going to fall away from you. I, I want to follow you to the end, to the death. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he does. But before Peter realizes what Jesus is saying is true, 
He responds back, even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Do you know that all of the disciples said, I won't deny you? All of them left Jesus. Them. There wasn't one disciple that did not leave Jesus the night he was arrested. Every disciple left him. Now, Peter, who's written about more than anyone else, except for Jesus, he still follows behind. He still wants to see what's going on with him. They all deny Jesus, but Peter's denial is mentioned in all four Gospels. We get a clear picture. We get a full story told of Peter. And we can all relate to the author of this letter. We can all relate to Peter, and I think God's desire is that we would learn from his mistakes and that his life would humble us and expose where we fall short. That even the leader of the beginning, the leader of the 12 disciples in the beginning, except for Jesus, once he left, he was a leader among the disciples, that he had a messy life. And what's beautiful about his realistic, messy life is that God still shaped him and used him. God chose to call Peter, to change Peter, and to continue to use Peter. Which brings us to our second question. How did God change him? How did God use him? How did God shape him and mold him? How did Peter turn into an apostle? How do you go from a fisherman to a fisher of men? Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he turned into an apostle. Well, how did he turn into an apostle? Well, first, the first step is he became a disciple of Jesus. That's the beginning of a relationship with God. If you want to begin following God and really knowing God, you have to be a student. You have to be a follower. You have to learn from him, watch him. You know, in our day, what we do, because he's not physically walking around here today, it's not like he's up here in the front row in the flesh where we can see him. The way we follow now is we read about him in, in the scripture. We learn about him and we, we learn how to follow his ways. Peter did that. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, I read part of this earlier. As Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus tells them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets to follow him. Peter was first a disciple, and that's God's desire for you and me. Are you following Jesus? Now, what does it mean to follow Jesus? I'm, I happen to be reading a book right now called Practicing the Way by John Mark Comer. He's a brilliant author, really great guy uh, from the Northwest. I just really love his writing. And he's a, he was a pastor. Now he's like a you know, leader of a, of a church-type small profit, a nonprofit. And he's a wonderful author. And he writes about first to be a disciple. What that really means is you don't just believe that Jesus exists. You don't, you don't even just believe that who he is, but you follow him. You watch him closely. You become a student. He becomes Lord of your life, meaning he decides your steps. He tells you how to live, how to treat people, where to go, how to do anything in your life. Whatever he talks about, you're interested in because you're learning from him. Peter became a student of Jesus and followed him and learned from him. And it wasn't easy to be a disciple. I mentioned earlier, Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. 
Taking up your cross is painful. Taking up your cross is saying, I'm going to follow you even if I have to suffer. And it's not just, you know, on Thursdays, right? We don't just, or Mondays. We don't just suffer on Mondays. Take up your cross daily. Every day follow me. He became a disciple because he followed Jesus. And the question is, are we following Jesus? Not do we believe in Jesus, but are we following him? Are we following in his footsteps? So first he became a disciple, then he became an apostle. Uh, I'll, I'll mention in Luke, Matthew 10, there's, in all the Gospels, it mentions the 12 disciples. And at some point, they switch from just disciples to apostles. In Matthew 10, it's summoning his 12 disciples. Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. So at some point in the ministry, they've been following Jesus for a while, and then Jesus sends out his disciples. That's what apostle means. It's from the Greek word apostolos. It means to, to send out. It was used for ships that were sent out on a mission in, in this day in their language. It was like those that were sent out on a voyage, a specific ship by a king, by someone who ruled over them to accomplish something, to gain something, to do something. And so when Jesus used this term, apostle, it wasn't a brand new term. It was a term that all the audience, the crowd knew, oh man, Jesus is specifically, uniquely sending these guys out on a particular mission. And that's what Peter became. These are the names of the 12 apostles. You see that switch at this point in the ministry. An apostle in the New Testament is someone who is personally sent out by Jesus. There's not many of them. But today, we realize that the sending out continues through the church. It's not that we are apostles now, but we are sent out. When Jesus gave those famous words to the disciples, the church for 2,000 years, everybody, multiple, every denomination, we all claim this as Jesus' word to the church. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. I'm sending you out. We are sent. We are called to be his ambassadors. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes about this. We are ministers of reconciliation, uh, ministers of the word. We are called to be sent out into the world to be Jesus's hands and feet, to be his mouthpiece, to be his witnesses, his salt, his light. We are sent out. And so the way that Jesus changes us and sanctifies us is we first begin as disciples following him and learning from him. As we learn and follow him, then he sends us out. And this isn't a formal sending out. This isn't like you have to wait until you're ordained. Do you know that you, if you are a believer of Christ, that God's plan and progression of sanctification for you to be holy, for you to be obedient, to follow him, is that you will learn from him and go out. That's why at the end of every service we say, we are the church, let's go be the church, grace we are, we are sent. This is part of our language because it's part of God's plan to be sent out. Are you being sent out? Do you see yourself as someone who is sent out? In other uh, cultures, I've, I've had the, the, the wonderful honor of, of going in different parts of the world and meeting people from different cultures and going on mission trips and meeting different missionaries and things like that. It's always fun. I love traveling. I love learning new cultures. I, I grew up on, on two different islands growing up because my dad was in the Marines. And so I like different cultures, different foods. I like all food. Um, but anyway, I love that kind of thing. And there, there are certain cultures, do you know what they call their, quote, missionaries? They call them apostles. 
Now, we wouldn't use that term because we don't want to confuse the New Testament title of apostle, but they're called apostles. That's what they call them because they're sent out. We are meant to be sent out. At the end of John's gospel, after the resurrection of Jesus, Peter has a life-changing, heart-changing interaction with Jesus. Peter has denied Jesus three times. It says he goes away and weeps bitterly. Also interesting, not this sermon, but Judas Iscariot and Peter both do the exact same thing. Both of them walk walk away crying. What was the difference between Peter and Judas Iscariot? Peter's sorrow led him to repentance like 1 Corinthians 7 talks about. Sorrow that leads to repentance. Judas had worldly sorrow that led to despair and he ended up taking his own life. Peter denied Jesus, and then guess what he did? He went back to the only thing he knew, fishing. He goes back to fishing, then Jesus resurrects, he, he ends up on the shore, he calls them in, Peter realizes it's Jesus, he probably felt a little awkward. Peter had not seen Jesus yet. He had not had the conversation of, uh, I totally denied you, I'm, I feel so horrible, I lied, I betrayed you, I'm such a coward. He, he never had that interaction yet. Peter, uh, Jesus shows up in his resurrected body, and then he just starts making breakfast somehow, fish. I don't know how he worked it out. I'm sure Jesus was a great cook, I imagine. I don't know. Uh, but he's got fish there. Peter comes up to the shore, and then Jesus asks him those famous, those famous words, Peter, do you love me? And he asks him three times on purpose to bring up that trauma, that denial, that betrayal that Peter was harboring in his heart, feeling guilty. I can never be used by him again. The only option I have is to go back fishing. Have you ever felt like that, where you just want to give up? You feel like you're a horrible Christian, like you just can't move forward. You've, you've relapsed again. You've fallen again. You just can't get it right. You'll never get it right. Peter felt that. Peter knew what that felt like. And Jesus says, do you love me? Well, if you love me, feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. Jesus still wanted to use Peter. Even though Peter, in his own heart and mind, according to the story, felt like he was done for. Jesus saw Peter as still usable. And after this, Peter goes on to preach at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He's the one that begins the church in a way. I mean, Jesus began the church, the Holy Spirit began the church, but Peter as a human vessel is the one that is is the hallmark. He's the one, Acts chapter 1 through 12, a little stint of Paul in chapter 9. Peter's in the limelight there. And he, he becomes this figure of the church that even today there's a whole denomination that sees St. Peter as the foundation of the church. Now, we see Peter's confession as the foundation, but that's, that's who Peter was, and that's how God changed him. God changed Peter and gave him real purpose, and here's what's wonderful. God wants to do the same thing with each of you. God's desire is to sanctify you, to holy you, to change you from the inside out, to make you usable for His purpose. God wants to use you for His purpose, and that's why Peter's writing. Peter's whole life under the microscope is that this guy who failed and stuck his foot in his mouth more than once, that this guy would be the one to write the letter in which one of the major themes is suffering. 
There's two main themes in 1 Peter. Now, according to the title, it looks like we're only touching one. We'll, we'll, of course, we're going we're gonna to address both, but suffering and holiness. Holy living and suffering, and that's why Peter is writing, which is the third question. Why is he writing? Why is Peter writing to us? Well, he wants to write to us so that we can live in a broken world, a sinful world, and still be God's holy people, even enduring unjust suffering and persecution and, and trials. So Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad. Uh, those living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. I'm going to say Asia. I know it looks like Asia, but Asia is different now. So we just use Asia just to remember that in this day it's a different part of the world. Asia and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That, that idea of sanctifying work, um, to be obedient, to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, that idea is continues. That's the, that is the foundation of his letter, that that's God's desire for us. We are exiles. We live in a broken world. We, we don't belong here. We're going to feel like misfits. We're going to be outcasts, but we can still live as God's holy people. And even though we're going to endure suffering, there's going to be glory at the other side. No matter how hard it is to live a righteous, holy life in, in this broken area, we can still live God's way. We can still follow him. That's the whole theme of 1 Peter. So he's writing to the exiles in northern Turkey of today. I put a map up there. It's not super easy to read. In the bottom green, that's Jerusalem. If you go north, like that big landmass, that's modern-day Turkey. These five regions that Peter mentions is because this is where the Roman Empire um, had brought a lot of Jews, those that they were afraid, hey, they're going to cause a riot, this is not going to work, we want you know, Roman peace, the Pax Romana. And so they're dispersed. They're actually kicked out of their homeland in a way, and they're brought to northern, what's today northern Turkey, those five regions. He's writing to them from Rome. Peter had made his, made his way all the way to Rome. So this is in the 60s AD when he's writing this letter from Rome, and he writes to them because he's like, listen, and, and tell me if you feel this way today in America. Peter is essentially saying in the very beginning sentences of his letter, I'm writing to you God has chosen for you to be his people, for you to be his holy ones. I'm writing to you exiles. You guys are foreigners. You guys are outcasts. You're living in an unholy land where they do not support and encourage Christian living and Christian thinking. Uh, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to struggle. You're going to have a hard time even living for God in the place where you live. Anybody ever feel that way here in America? I mean, I know we're a Christian nation, kind of, not really, are we? I mean, does anybody else read the news right now and go, oh man, things are going great. This is exactly how it ought to be, right? Anybody? No, none of us. We are all exiles. We, you and I, are foreigners on this planet because our real citizenship is in heaven. We belong to a different kingdom. I don't belong to the American kingdom. I'm glad to live in America. I consider it a blessing. I love what our country could stand for, even though it feels like everyone's confused about what it ought to be today. I love the kind of freedoms that help people flourish that could be represented. But America's not my home. This isn't where I'm going to be forever. This isn't where I'm putting all my trust and my hope. My trust, my hope, my citizenship is in heaven. And so there's a way in which you and I are actually exiles here 
where we are not supposed to feel at home here. There's a sense in which 1 Peter is meant to remind us, you're going to feel like you don't belong and you're going to suffer. Now, I'm doing my own math here, so this is not going to be what you read in commentaries and if you Google it, you're not going to get this exact number. But reading through 1 Peter for me, I count 14 times that, that Peter mentions the idea of suffering and he uses over a half dozen uh, different words to describe suffering and enduring uh, unjust, you know, uh, harshness and all those things. He uses multiple words over a dozen times just to make the point clear. You are going to suffer here and I'm writing to you so that you don't forget who you belong to, who you are, what your foundation is, and what God's desire is for you. You're going to suffer. Some of the, some of the ideas of suffering is in different institutions known to man. It's at work. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he mentions suffering at work, having bad bosses, masters, people over you, overseeing you. Uh, he talks about suffering in marriage. Uh, do not raise your hand. I mean, even if you both raise your hand, this isn't going to work. So, have you ever felt like marriage involves suffering? First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he writes about this. He writes about how hard it is to be married to a sinner and to love them God's way. He talks about the government. Anybody ever know the government can mess up? No? I, I do. A man. No, not, I mean, not my government, but maybe your government. Yeah. Uh, he brings up these topics because these are real issues that people are facing in their everyday lives. And Peter says, your living hope, your foundation, your rock, which by the way, Peter is not the rock. We're going to get to that next week. Peter's not the rock. Your real foundation cannot be you hoping that things will go well here. Can't be your hope. And Peter knows what it's like to be attacked by our enemy. I'm still learning what this means. I don't fully understand. I've read about it. I'm still learning. But in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus turns to Peter, does not call him Peter. By the way, in John's gospel, he calls Peter Simon Peter. In the other gospels, he's either called Simon or Peter. I think John was just like, it's Simon Peter. It's like both same guy, right? Same guy, both names. But in Luke 22, a special occurrence, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Simon, Simon. One who hears, one who listens, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion. You know who mentions that in the New Testament? Peter. You know who, who knows what it's like to feel attacked? Peter. He tells him, Simon, Simon, Satan asked to sift you like wheat. If you don't know what sifting wheat is, it's basically Satan is asked to tear you apart, to tear apart your life, to destroy you. But I've prayed for you that your faith, your trust in me will not fail. And when you have turned back, here's what's so crazy about this. What do you mean turned back? Oh, has Peter left him? When you have turned back. In other words, 
And when God answers my prayer for you, (laughs) strengthen your brothers. Strengthen them. They're going to need hope. They're going to need strength. They're going to endure a horrible life. They're going to endure suffering and sickness, and God's not always going to make it easy. You know, Peter, one day you're going to be shackled and taken in a way in which you don't like when you're an old man. Peter was going to be crucified upside down eventually. Peter, I'm going to pray for you because life's going to be really difficult for you and you're going to feel like a failure and I'm, I'm, you are eventually going to turn around because I'm praying for you. And when you turn back, strengthen, strengthen them. Feed my sheep. They're going to need to read 1 Peter and they're going to need to know that you love them and that you have called them, that they are chosen, that there's a purpose, that they're going to endure suffering, but they can still live holy lives. They're going to need that. I want you to do that. And so that's what we're going to look at for the next however many weeks it takes you to listen. I'm going to pray, and then we'll be, we'll be sent out. We are sent. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Peter's life. I thank you for exposing even the messy parts of his life. I know I'm, I'm definitely not even close to where Peter was. I can relate to his failure I know what it's like to want to give up. I know what it's like to feel like I shouldn't be a leader. So I thank you for the way that you you call and choose us to follow you. Thank you for being our, our hope and our strength. Thank you for that you are our foundation. And I thank you for Peter's words. I pray, would you help us? Help us to read and study 1 Peter as those who are hungry and needing hope. We need your word. Your word is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It gets to the very heart of of matters, and we need your, your strength and your help. So we pray, use your word to transform us. Help us to follow you. Our enemy desires to, to sift us like wheat. Our hope is that you are... You are at the right hand of the Father, always making intercession for us. Would you pray for us that our faith would not fail, and would you help us to be your people? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.